traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please check out my new course, The Bronze Age, at avid.fm ancient. That's avid.fm ancient. Thanks again for listening. In 1267 BC, his first year after taking power, Hattusili received disturbing reports from the Hittite viceroy of Carchemish. Residents of the Mitanni town of Tarira were crossing the Euphrates to raid his territory, and the Mitanni king Shatuara I had failed to take any action. Now, Shatuara had never really been his own boss— He'd started out his reign as a Hittite vassal, and was now a vassal of the Assyrian king, Adad-Nirari I. After Mursili III had sent the Assyrians that snippy letter, then refused to back it up with force, no one was too worried about Hittite repercussions. As far as Shatuara was concerned, as long as Assyria had his back, the people of Tarira could keep on raiding and pillaging. To the new Hittite king, Hattusili III, this was simply unacceptable. Unlike his predecessor, Hattusili had no real problem with the Assyrian ruler asserting great kingship, nor did he truly fear his power. But he did feel that kings should clean up their own messes. His letter to Adad-Nirari was brief and to the point. If Tarira is yours, smash it. If Tarira is not yours, write to me so that I may smash it. And as long as he was writing, Hattusili had another axe to grind. It is the custom that when kings assume kingship, the kings, his equals in rank, send him appropriate gifts of greeting. But you did not do this. Unlike Mursili, he at least tried to end on a positive note, sending the Assyrian king the gift of a dagger blade of iron. Adad-Nirari likely pressured Shatuwara to stop the Syrian raids. Whatever his plans with regard to Hadi, he saw no need for a troublesome vassal to provoke a confrontation. But a short time later, Shatuwara died 
and his son Washashada took power. And right out of the gate, the new young king adopted a hostile posture. Just because his father lost to the Assyrians and been forced to pay a humiliating tribute didn't mean that he couldn't turn things around. Pride, you know, can be a real killer. As Washashada moved toward open revolt, Adad-Narari marched up north, captured the king, and dragged him to Assur in chains. It turned out to be one of Adad-Narari's last acts before he died in 1263. Emboldened by his death, Washashada's son, Shatuara II, launched a second revolt. And he wasn't the only one so emboldened, because Shatuara managed to secure some level of Hittite support. Hattusili may have felt that this was the last real shot at halting Assyrian expansion. There was only one thing standing in their way, the new Assyrian king, Shalmaneser I, which, as it turned out, was plenty. According to the king's own annals, Shalmaneser slaughtered countless numbers of their extensive army. As for Shatuara, I chased him westward at Arrow Point. I butchered their hordes, but 14,400 of them, which remained alive, I blinded and carried off. Once the Hittites and Mitanni were beaten, Shalmaneser spent the rest of the year annihilating every iota of resistance in Mitanni territory at the end of which he converted the kingdom into a new Assyrian province. And that's the last that anyone ever heard about the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni. So Hattusili lost that gamble. But otherwise, he began his reign with two clear marks in his favor. First, he already had two sons, the proverbial heir in a spare. And second, he'd chosen a powerful partner in his wife and queen, Puduhepa. We discussed Puduhepa a bit last episode, but it wasn't until she ascended the throne that she really came into her own. As a general rule, Bronze Age queens had restricted roles and were forced to work behind the scenes to exercise any real power. But nobody passed the word to Puduhepa. Right from the start, the queen began to put her stamp on almost every aspect of Hittite government. Festivals, prayers, rituals, legal cases, administration, even royal architecture. At the same time, she continued to embrace her provincial background as a native of Kizawadna, and never went out of her way to appear more Hittite. Since her people's culture was largely Hurrian, Puduhepa tasked royal scribes with copying and organizing important Hurrian texts. She also never truly embraced the Hittite term for queen, Tawanana, and preferred to be known as daughter of the land of Kizawadna. Puduhepa's training as an Ishtar priestess was easily adapted to her new position as chief priestess of the Hittite Empire. But she didn't just preside over Hittite rituals. According to historian Trevor Bryce, 
Puduhepa may also have organized a major rationalization of the vast array of deities in the Hittite pantheon, establishing a number of syncretisms between Hittite and Hurrian deities in particular. Puduhepa's strongest suit was diplomatic relations. Not only did she visit most of the major Hittite cities of Anatolia and northern Syria, but she also engaged in personal correspondence with foreign heads of state. Upon taking power, Hattusilid quickly plugged himself in to the late Bronze Age communication network. One of his earliest contacts was his old nemesis, the pharaoh Ramesses II. As subsequent letters flowed back and forth, parallel channels opened up, and soon Puduhepa was speaking with Ramesses directly. A frequent topic was royal marriages, and two of Puduhepa's daughters ended up marrying the pharaoh, with one, Ma'at Hor Neferure, becoming a great royal wife. She also married two other daughters to King Ali Sharuma of Ashua and King Bentashina of Amuru, and married one of Bentashina's daughters to her stepson Nerik Kaili. Puduhepa rarely held back. When Ramesses II cautioned her about marrying a son to a Babylonian princess, since he considered the Kassites to be a fading power, Puduhepa responded, if you say the king of Babylon is not a great king, then you do not know the status of Babylon. Correspondence is also preserved between Puduhepa and Ramesses' wife, Nefertari. In one letter, Nefertari thanks Puduhepa for inquiring about her health, asks the gods to keep Ramesses and Hattusili as brothers forever, and sends the queen the gift of a golden necklace. Years of similar friendly exchanges resulted in the creation, in 1259, of the first international peace treaty in world history. The Eternal Treaty, as the Hittites called it, pledged Ramesses II and Hattusili III to eternal peace and brotherhood, and renounced all future campaigning in Syrian territory. Additional clauses stipulated mutual support if attacked by a third party. Yes, we're talking about you, Assyria. And a pledge to extradite all refugees back to their home kingdoms. Both Egyptian and Hittite versions survive, with the Egyptian version hung at Karnak, bearing the seals of both Hattusili and Puduhepa side by side. The Hittite version contained one additional clause, a pledge by Ramesses to support the heirs of Hattusili in any succession disputes. For a king who'd recently usurped the throne, it was a pretty reasonable inclusion. One sticky item that wasn't included was the status of the deposed Hittite king, Uri Teshub, the former Mursili III. Because after being exiled south to Syria, Uri Teshub had escaped his overseers and made a beeline for Egypt, where he'd quickly found a second home in the court of Ramesses II. Hattusilid made multiple pleas to have him returned, but the pharaoh remained evasive. 
As both men knew, keeping a spare king in one's back pocket was an excellent guarantee of good behavior. Peace with Egypt was a boon for Syria, and the Eternal Treaty smoothed the way for further Luwian migrations. But that didn't mean that the Hittite Empire was free from violent conflict. It just meant that Hattusili was free to focus his energies on one particular Hittite nemesis, the renegade Arzawan prince Piyama Radu. By this point, Piyama Radu had been active in western Anatolia for going on 30 years. One reason for his durability was his special relationship with the king of Ahiawa. As mentioned previously, this was likely a Mycenaean king back on the Greek mainland who controlled a strip of Anatolian coast from a base at Milawata, classical Miletus. Under Mycenaean protection, Piyama Radu kept himself busy with attacks on the former lands of Arzawa, which he may have felt was his rightful inheritance, along with Luca in the south and Wilusa in the north. The worst part was, whenever the Hittites boxed him in, he'd slip right out to sea. With frustration mounting, Hattusili tried the diplomatic approach, writing to the king of Ahiawa in the so-called Tawagalawa letter. He began with flattery, addressing the king as my brother, my equal, and even great king. Titles usually reserved for the kings of Egypt, Hatti, and Babylon. Hattusili also referenced an agreement on Walusa, over which we went to war. And cue the reality show record scratch, because what that means is that, at some point, for some unknown reason, the Greeks and Hittites had gone to war over the famous city of Troy. The bulk of the letter details the complex history between the Hittites, Ahiawa, and Piyamaradu, which largely consisted of the Ahiawans agreeing to hand the renegade over, then reneging at the last minute. At some point, the king of Ahiawa had sent his brother across the Aegean to meet with Hattusili. The prince's name was Tawagalawa, but this may have been the Hittite take on the Mycenaean Greek Ateocles. Hattusili'd sent his son, the crown prince Neric Kaili, to transport Ateocles back to Hattusis. But Ateocles had refused to leave Milawata, claiming that he feared for his life. After detailing all the back and forth, Hattusili got to the ask. After a recent attack, Piyama Radud sailed off west with 7,000 captives, likely for sale in Aegean ports. Since he was clearly now in Ahiawan territory, Hattusili requested his immediate capture and extradition to Hatti. Or at least, you know, please stop allowing him to use your territory to strike at Hittite allies. We don't have a copy of the king's reply, but since Piyama Radu remained at large, it was very likely a no. These western intrigues were a big distraction. But as Hattusili entered his 70s, another topic began to loom even larger. The pending royal succession. 
which off the bat you'd think would be a no-brainer. I mentioned earlier that he had two sons, the crown prince Narek Kaili and his younger brother Tutalaya. Narek Kaili was Hattusili's son by his first wife, before he'd married Puduhepa, and was obviously named after the northern storm god Narek. He'd been designated crown prince, was married to an Amuru princess, and may have already had children of his own. Then there was Tutalaya, who may have looked like a distant second, except for a couple of factors. First, he was the son of Puduhepa, so enough said there. And second, he had a close relationship with a critical Hittite vassal, King Karunta of Tarhuntasa. As I mentioned last episode, Karunta was Hattusili's nephew, the younger son of Muatali, who'd been raised up north by Hattusili alongside his own son, Tutalaya. The two young men were tighter than tight, and a bronze tablet inscribed by Tutalaya records his cousin's pledge. If your father does not appoint you to kingship, in whatever position your father places you, I will be loyal only to you. It was also lost on no one that, as brother of the deposed Uri Teshub, Karunta had a strong personal claim to the Hittite throne. Even worse, Uri Teshub himself was somehow back in the wind. According to Ramesses II, the banished royal had snuck out of Egypt for parts unknown, possibly somewhere in Hattie. Which meant that when Hattusili died, there was a reasonable chance that Uri Teshub and his brother Karunta might try to restore their dynasty. The best way to prevent this was to pass the kingdom down to a son whom Karunta loved even more than his own brother. Which is why at some point, no matter how much anguish it may have caused, Hattusili made Tutalaya crown prince in place of Nerik Kaili. To bolster his credentials, Hattusili also made Tutalaya governor of Hakpisa and high priest of the storm god of Nerik. Puduhepa did her part by arranging her son a royal marriage to a Babylonian princess. When Hattusili died in 1237, Tutalaya inherited the throne. And again, since he was the younger son, he needed very public support. His most influential backer was his mother, Puduhepa, who already had a strong role in governing and remained on a first-name basis with regional rulers. Tutalaya's succession was also supported by the Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses II, as well as by Tutalaya's powerful cousin, King Karunta of Tarhuntasa. It also helped that his older brother, Nerik Kaili, didn't contest the move. Despite the support, later correspondence shows that Tutalaya never really felt secure on the Hittite throne. In one such letter, he demanded loyalty from all his vassals, remarking that, the land of Hattie is full of the royal line. In Hattie, the descendants of Supaluliuma, the descendants of Muatali, the descendants of Hattusili are numerous. 
He also knew that somewhere out there was Uri Teshub, plotting and scheming to retake his stolen throne. Along with that perpetual stress ball, Tutalaya also faced revolts in peripheral Hittite territories, including Luka, the Kazka lands, and Hayasa Azi. But before too long, his attention was drawn to that perpetual Hittite time suck, the western lands of Arzawa. On the bright side, Piyama Radu was finally dead, or at least had disappeared from Hittite records. But even more annoyingly, the Ahiawans were backing a new horse, a usurper of the throne of Seha Riverland by the name of Tarhuna Radu. As Bryce notes, the nature of the support is unclear. It may have been military, political, logistical, or purely moral. Whatever it was, it was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back. Tutelai had spent years watching his father try to negotiate with the Ahiawans, only to have his hand slapped away and his reasonable request denied. After decades, even centuries, of Ahiawan interference, Tutelai had finally decided that enough was enough. In response to the revolt in Seha Riverland, Tutelaya marched out west, captured the usurper Tarhuna Radu, and reinstated the legitimate dynasty. But that was only the start. A later tablet, the so-called Milawata Letter, suggests that Tutalaya enlisted two vassals, King Tarkas Nawa of Mira and King Walmu of Wilusa, in an attack on Milawata. It was the first open conflict between Hadi and Ahiawa since the previous war over Wilusa. And, unfortunately, we have just as few details. All we know is, by the end of the conflict, the Hittites had captured Milawata. Bereft of their Anatolian base, the Ahiawans were forced to withdraw to some of the offshore islands. Meanwhile, according to Bryce, Tutalaya may have granted one of his vassals, King Tarkas Nawa of Mira, authority over Mira, Walusa, and the newly conquered Milawata. He was also very likely tasked with preventing Ahiawa's return. It was a novel solution to the Western problem, and one that Tutalaya probably hoped might finally stabilize the region. Because even as events were winding down, they were ramping up back east. In 1233 BC, King Shalmaneser I of Assyria was succeeded by his son, Tukulti Ninurta, or my trust is in the warrior god Ninurta, which kind of lets you know what's up. Ever since Shalmaneser's conquest of the region, the former Mitanni lands east of the Euphrates had remained unusually quiet. Tutalaya very likely shot off letters and gifts to the new young king to preserve the status quo. But he also had few illusions. His personal early warning system was the Hittite viceroy of Carchemish, currently Eni Teshub, the son of Sahuru Nuwash, who may have dispatched the urgent news that Tikulti Ninurta was gathering his forces for a major Assyrian offensive. 
In preparation for a possible war, Tutalia began engaging his vassals. His letter to one, King Shaushgamua of Amuru, captures the contemporary scene. The kings who are equal to me are the king of Egypt, the king of Babylon, and the king of Assyria. Interestingly, the king of Ahiyawa was also included, before being conspicuously crossed off the list. According to Bryce, the most likely explanation was that the Assyrian danger had risen in parallel with the situation out west, and that once Tutalai had captured Milawata, Ahiyawa dropped from the ranks of major regional powers. So the strike-through reflected a last-minute update before the tablets went out. The logic's borne out by the rest of the letter. Tutalaya notes that the king of Babylon is his friend, the king of Assyria his enemy, and that Assyrian merchants found in Amuru should be detained and sent to Hattusas. There's also an interesting hint that Hittite enemies might be working together. Tutalaya instructs his vassal that you shall not allow any ship of Ahiyawa to go to the king of Assyria. In their book, the Ahiyawa letters, Bryce and colleagues argue that Tutalaya's concern here is likely Mycenaean soldiers disembarking in Syrian ports to make their way to support Takulti Ninurta. Tensions with Assyria came to a head at the city of Niraya, a few dozen miles east of the Euphrates. It was here that Takulti Ninurta, marching at the head of the Assyrian army, found a city invested and surrounded by thousands of Hittite troops. From Tutalaya's standpoint, it made sense to confront the Assyrian king before he could cross the Euphrates. But technically, by crossing the river himself, Tutalaya could now be cast in the role of illegal aggressor. Which is essentially the tack the Assyrians took. In a letter to Tutalaya, Tekulti Ninurta stressed that Naraya is at war with me. Why are your troops in Naraya? Legally, you were at peace with me, not at war. Why then have your troops fortified Naraya? Once Tutalaya refused to withdraw, it was all just a matter of time. The subsequent Battle of Neriah went down as an Assyrian victory. And while that may have been true from a military standpoint, it's hard to see what they gained. There's no real evidence that Tekulti Ninurta drove the Hittites across the Euphrates and conquered Syrian territory. Or, if he did, it didn't stay conquered for long. Which suggests that in reality, the battle was likely much more of a stalemate. And luckily for Tutalaya, the Assyrian king soon turned his attention to the conquest of Kassite Babylon. Win or loss, Tutalaya had managed to stem the Assyrian threat and preserve his hold on Syrian territories, first won by Supaluliuma. Equally important, Ahiyawa had been driven back into the sea ending one of the most persistent threats in recent Hittite memory. To the south, the aged pharaoh Ramesses II remained a faithful ally. 
the Pharaoh's marriage to two of Tutelia's sisters, and the blessings of the eternal treaty ensured a flow of gold and grain to keep the Hittites prosperous. Despite a fear of dynastic threats, Tutelia entered the 1220s BC at the head of a flourishing kingdom. He could never have guessed that within half a century, it'd all be washed away. <laughs> 